0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, friends, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Micah, thank you for that. Uh, If you're ever wondering why we prefer to teach expositionally through the Scriptures, taking a text of Scripture and unpacking it over the course of the morning, what you just witnessed is the answer to that. Uh, Because when Micah got up here and said, I'm going to talk for a little bit, there's a little bit of anxiety that wells up in my heart because I don't know what he's going to say. But when Micah knows where we're going, what we're doing in terms of the text, none of that was planned by me. That was him meditating on The passage of scripture that we're preaching from, the passage of scripture that was being read by our friend Kyle, and all of that and all of the songs come alongside to buttress a point which we believe God wants to make this morning. So Colin, thank you to the band. Micah, thank you for that prayer. Kyle, thank you for your reading. And friends, thank you for joining us here this morning. Uh, If you are new or just visiting, my name is Tyler. I serve as the associate pastor here. And one of the things that we have been doing, so you know this if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, is we are looking at Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 as we consider what does it mean to be a healthy church. And so we are looking at uh, seven letters penned by John the disciple, uh, but dictated by Jesus, uh, resurrected and glorious. And so far in our series, we have covered churches 1 through 5. And this morning, with two churches left, we look at the Church of Philadelphia— you might be surprised, for those of you who don't know the Bible very well, it does not begin, Dear Philadelphia, I'm sorry for Patrick Mahomes. But actually what's contained in here... Okay, there are the football fans in the audience. Found them. Uh, what's contained in this letter is a, uh, is a loving uh, invitation into greater health by Jesus reaching out to a church as he has done with the previous five, and addressing what they are doing well and what is coming for them. Uh, So we are thinking about what it means to be a healthy church. We are looking at these letters. Uh, So you can turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, just know the book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. So you flip to the back, you run through the index, and some books have some maps in the back. Then you'll hit the book of Revelation. Uh, and then we are at the beginning of that in chapters two and chapter three. Chapter numbers are the big numbers on the page, so look for the big number three. And verse numbers are the small numbers on the page, about the size of a footnote. So that's where we're going to be this morning. And while you are turning there, uh, let me thank those of you who participated in our church health survey. Uh, we are seeking to grow as a healthy church, so we sent out uh, a survey, which Pastor Jim put together, and we got a lot of excellent feedback. Approximately 90 responses was the uh, what I remember coming in, and for a church that is averaging about 230, 240 in attendance, that's remarkable participation. So, uh, the elders are going to comb through that data, think about what it means, and how to apply it. But I just wanted to, on behalf of Pastor Jim, the elders, and myself, thank those of you who participated. So, thinking about church health, let's look at Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. I'll read it for us and then pray, and we will begin to unpack it. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens what no one will shut, and who shuts what no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and the, uh, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father in heaven, would you give us eyes to see this morning as we, have already, as we have already sung in prayer. Open the eyes of our heart that we may see your holiness. But Lord, also give us ears to hear the message of this text, the purpose of this text. Help us wrestle with it well. Both as individuals and as a corporate body, may we through this text know better how to glorify you and how to seek each other's good. We ask this in the name of your Son and our Savior, the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's begin as we unpack this letter, considering who Jesus is for the church at Philadelphia. If you've been with us for a while, you know that in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus introduces himself, and there are these objective, glorious, massive descriptions of who Jesus is when John sees him and before Jesus begins to dictate these letters. And that's important because Jesus does not change, and so Revelation 1 gives us this big picture of Jesus, but in Revelations 2 and 3, each descriptor there is then taken and applied to a specific church in a specific circumstance— Meaning that although Jesus does not change, although he is the same for every believer, Jesus with pastoral tact addresses each church in their particular circumstance. He addresses each church drawing out how his character and nature might encourage, rebuke, or enlighten them as to how they should live before him. And I love considering these letters because they start with who Jesus is. It's not tangential to the letters, it's fundamental. It's the foundation on which the rest of the content of the letter is based. And I stated a moment ago that we were led to preach through these seven letters by a feeling that we need to reflect more on what it means to be a healthy church. What it means to grow as as a healthy church. And sure, grow numerically. Every elder and myself and the staff see what is happening at this church, and we love it, and we want more people to be a part of it. In the church health survey that Jim sent out, many people said that they were high in morale when they thought about what was taking place at Journey Church. And so we look at that and we say, yes, we love what is taking place here, and we want more people to experience things like our preaching, like our music, like our disability ministry. We want more people to be a part of that. But we don't simply want to grow in size. There's no virtue or vice in size. There's no good or wrong in size. Rather, what we want to do is consider what it means to grow in health what it means to grow in our comprehension of biblical doctrine, in the depth and consistency of our prayer lives, in the effectiveness of our discipleship and discipline, in the competency of our leadership, in the strength and accessibility of our teaching and preaching, in the vitality of our sung worship, in the freedom of our evangelism, in the clarity and importance of our membership, in the readiness of our generosity and volunteerism, and in the love, unity, and community of Journey Church. We want to grow in all of those ways. We want to reflect the character and nature of God. And as we think about that, it can be so easy to approach these texts and simply look for what do we need to do and what do we need to stop doing. But each letter stops us short and says you cannot advance to the rest of the content until you have dealt with who Jesus is, both objectively for all and specifically in this circumstance for this church. And so who is Jesus for the church at Philadelphia? The Holy One, The true one, who has the key of David, who opens what no one will shut, and who shuts what no one can open. To understand this, we need to look at each descriptor, so let's take them each in turn. The holy one. Now, this phrase is used, this term is used throughout the scriptures, but probably the best place to really get a look at what it means is in Isaiah 40, verses 21 through 31. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, so let me just give you some background. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is giving a biting critique of idolatry that the Israelites are experiencing and practicing. Rather than worshiping the true God, they're worshiping idols. And now we might think that that's irrelevant to us. I mean, we might need to ask or get clarity on the question of what does it actually mean to worship something? This thing that we are doing right now, this is called a worship gathering. And if this is what worship is, wholly and completely, if there's no definition of worship outside of what we have just sung, what we have just prayed, what I am doing in terms of preaching a sermon, and what's going to happen afterwards, then I guess we've overcome idolatry. Because my guess is none of you guys, and and I know for myself, I don't have another calendar appointment for the forthcoming week where I'm going to go and sing songs to something that that I think created the heavens and the earth. I'm not going to sit under a reading of something that I think is is holy scripture that's not the Bible. And I'm not going to listen to somebody who prepared a message about a deity which rivals that of Yahweh and Jesus Christ. So if this is all worship is, then we've overcome idolatry. But I think each one of you knows this is not the sum total of worship. This is our gathered act of worship. So maybe let's define worship as we think about idolatry. To worship something is to serve something in which you have invested ultimate significance for your life. Or to say it another way, to serve something in which you are anchoring your joy and your meaning and your significance, your security. Or to serve something in order to be declared in and through that thing that you are enough. And so worship is an act of service that is attached to to a massive amount of significance of who we think we are and how we think our lives are valued. In the ancient world, the reason why this looks so different from it, our day today is in the ancient world, everything was invested with spiritual significance. And so places, geography, objects, occupations, forces of nature were all seen to be infused with spirits in an enchanted world where everything was mysterious and nothing was mundane. And so what the ancients did when they worshipped a god other than Yahweh is they found some, uh, uh, some piece of material, wood or iron or clay, and they shaped and fashioned a caricature of a god. They shaped and fashioned something that was supposed to approximate the characteristics and the look of a particular deity they believed existed. Now today we may have outgrown such primitive ideas, but we have not ceased to serve things which we have invested our existential and eternal significance in. We have not kept ourselves from wrapping the meaning of our lives, the importance of our lives, and the value of our lives up in created things. So there's actually a growing body of literature which addresses contemporary idolatry. And it's not exclusively written by Christians. But what they have found is that we worship at an astonishing rate, We worship work and romance, children and technology, leisure, food, sex, sports, politics, and we even can worship idols that are supposed to approximate Yahweh or Jesus Christ, but they are false depictions. So we often call these cults or heresies. And we can even classify our idols based off of what they are. There's so many of them. So we could categorize them as theological idols, sexual idols, ritual idols, political and economic idols, racial and national idols, relational idols, legal or moralistic idols, philosophical idols, cultural idols, and even idols fashioned from the motivations, drives, and desires deep in our heart that we might call deep idols. None of this would have surprised the reformer John Calvin, who in the 16th century wrote, that man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We are constantly churning out for ourselves objects of worship other than our God and Savior. And so today we invest significance in these things. We ask them to declare us enough, to declare our lives worthy, to declare our lives meaningful and valuable. And it is that impetus... Not merely the act of carving something, but that impetus towards idolatry, which Isaiah addresses in Isaiah chapter 40, and in verses 25 and 26, Isaiah, speaking for God, says this, "'To whom will you compare me, that I should be like them?' says the Holy One. "'Lift up your eyes and see who created these things,' He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. In other words, Isaiah is imagining them worshiping the sun and the moon, the stars and the objects of the sky, and he says, who created that? Do you worship them as if they are deities because they were spoken into being? Well, friends, each and everything that we decide to worship too is the object of God's creative activity. We might worship technology or children, but we would have to know that there would be no such thing as children had we not been given the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, and there would be no technology, culture, or creative arts without God infusing us with his creative image. And so we bear God's image, and all things that we are tempted to worship come from that. And so Jesus is saying when he calls himself the Holy One for the church of Philadelphia, he is saying that he is the true God, the living God, the one who created all the things that our foolish hearts are prone to worship. All those things were created for him and by him. Well, what about the true one? We don't need to look into the Old Testament. Like I said, John wrote the book of Revelation penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and by the dictation of Jesus. And so we can simply look to John's writing. John wrote a letter that we call 1 John. And in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, he concludes the letter thusly. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him, speaking of God the Father, who is true and that we are in Him, speaking of God the Father, Who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he, the true God, and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John's work here associates the characterization of truth with a unique relationship with the Father, such that Jesus reveals the Father in a way that nothing else does. And he reveals not only the character of the Father, but also how we can have eternal life with him. And then he juxtaposes himself, saying, Worship. Christ, and God the Father through him. Keep yourself from idols. So again, we have the contrast with idolatry. All those other objects are false and foolish. So that's two. Let's look at the third uh, identifier that Jesus gives. But we need to understand the circumstance of this church. We need to ask why uh, Jesus would use this to describe himself, and what is going on in the church of Philadelphia. Well, look at their circumstances recorded in Revelation 3, 9, and 10. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Like the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, the church of Philadelphia will face persecution. And like the church of Smyrna, that persecution will come from a Jewish context. So Jesus refers to the synagogue of Satan. Now if we read Revelation 2 uh, that, we at last, uh, that we looked at a few weeks ago, last month, we would notice that the synagogue of Satan is associated with slandering. They're not a violent group of persecutors. Rather, they have harsh words. They slander and they claim that God has rejected the worship of Christian churches. They claim that the doors of the kingdom are going to be slammed shut in the face of Christians because they have committed the idolatry of worshiping Jesus Christ and claiming that God has a son. This is hard criticism for Philadelphia to endure because they are but a small church, a small group. They have little cultural, political, or economic power, and the powerful people in their town, in their city, deny Christ's identity. And they deny that God loves the churches that gather in the name of Jesus Christ. It can often, I'm sure that you know, be hard to resist the pull of those who are powerful culturally or influential culturally. But Jesus speaking into that situation, says that he is the keeper of the key and the opener and importantly the closer of the door of the kingdom. Why the door of the kingdom? Because in the ancient world, people didn't have front doors like you and I have such that we're wandering around with keys all the time. No, there was one key in every city. You know what that key opened? The gates of the city. So for Jesus to declare himself as the possessor of the key, he is declaring himself to be the only one with the authority to open and close the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Christ inherited from his father, David. Let's consider both of these actions of opening and closing. Jesus offers eternal life in the kingdom to those who do not deny his identity and who hold fast to his word. Jesus has opened the door of the kingdom, and he holds its key. And this little church, therefore, need not fear the harassment of influential cultural elites. In fact, as the holder of the key, Jesus promises them three things. In verse 9, he promises them vindication. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. In verse 10, he promises them deliverance through trial. Not importantly, deliverance from trial. As Pastor Jim said, and as you know, if you get our weekly email to prepare for the service, our theme this week is worshiping an unshakable God in shakable times. Well, Jesus doesn't say, I will save you from the trial. Rather, he says, He will deliver us through trial. I will keep you for the hour, for from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And finally, in verse 12, he promises them security in the kingdom. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out. But Jesus is also, if he's the opener of the kingdom of heaven, he is also the closer of the kingdom of heaven. One of the hardest truths in the Christian faith is that there is coming a day when the doors of the kingdom are shut and locked. And the opportunity and the option, the, the invitation to worship and live in the presence of the holy God mediated through Jesus Christ is off the table. And the only option available to those who remain is to stand in the presence of God's holiness not mediated by Jesus Christ, which is to experience his just judgment, wrath, and anger toward our sin. We must understand this, that the gospel means good news, but one of the reasons why the gospel is good news is because it speaks to a dire and devastating state, which we all begin in. In other words, the news of the gospel is so good because our initial position and spiritual state is so bad. About 40% of those who profess evangelical beliefs and attend evangelical churches, which we are an evangelical church that professes evangelical belief, about 40% of them believe that every, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. This corresponds to a common saying associated with liberal Protestantism that goes like this, a God without wrath brought men without a sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry or ministrations of a Christ without a cross. We do not believe that here. We believe rather, as the EFCA doctrine statement on humanity says, we believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and choice, alienated from God. And under his wrath, Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Stated succinctly, we are not good. We are cosmic rebels, breakers of the divine law. And James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Why is that? Because the law of God comes out of, flows out of God's character, who God is. Therefore, As God's character is unified, so God's law is unified. To violate one aspect of God's law is to violate the whole of God's law. So thinking back to our doctrine statement, don't take our word for it. One of the mantras of our church is where stands it written? Romans 3, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth is stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel is good news because it speaks to a situation of dire desperation. We are sinners and we stand before a holy and just God. Jesus was once called a good teacher, and without denying his goodness, he simply challenged the man back who is good but God alone. We should not take the concept of goodness lightly, is Jesus' point. If we do not hear the warning that Jesus closes the doors of the kingdom at some point, then we ignore it at our own peril. Many of the letters that we have looked at, Jesus threatens the church with their lack of faithfulness, and his threat goes like this, I will come soon. Because they have not taken up with earnestness the seeking of holiness in their lives, Jesus says, I am coming soon, and when I come, I will come to judge. They have not taken seriously the gravity of sin or as Puritan theologian Jonathan, Ed, or Jonathan Owen said, the sinfulness of sin. But there's this amazing invitation in the church of Philadelphia where Jesus says, I am coming soon, but he does not say that as an act of judgment or a warning about his coming wrath. He says it to encourage a church of little power because this church has understood what it means to hold fast to God's word. This church has understood the goodness about the news of Jesus Christ because they have understood what John taught in his gospel. That in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A little bit further on, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him because the world is not basically good. But he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to, to all those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And because that is true, Jesus, speaking of himself, could say this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those who reject Jesus, who Jesus declares himself to be, he declares himself the, to be the word of God, the son of God, the holy one, the true one, the keeper of the key of heaven, those who reject him will find themselves locked out of heaven's gates where there is nothing but the weeping and gnashing of teeth. To disregard this reality as a church is to undermine our faith because we will, take, we will not take seriously the gravity of sin and we will undermine our mission to make disciples because the motivation that spurs us on when evangelism is difficult, when there are obstacles in the way, will be removed. Evangelism can be hard and discouraging at times, but what presses you forward to share the gospel, which the scripture says is a stumbling block and a rock of offense to those who do not believe? What presses you forward to share that with your friends, with your family, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your classmates? What presses you forward? A love that would risk the relationship in order to snatch them from the fire of hell with the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Holy One, the True One, the opener and closer of the kingdom of heaven. So, church, who are we? Who are we when we look at the letter to Philadelphia? Who are we called to be? Well, first, we're called to be those who keep Christ's word, even and even especially when it is hard. Twice, Jesus notes that Philadelphia had kept his word in verses 8 and 10. They had done so in spite of their little power. Like I said, the theme for this morning is praising an unshakable God and shaking times, and maybe you have felt the times shaking as they do in each and every generation. Maybe you have felt the world shaking as you think about a European war, as you think about saber-rattling in Asia, as you think about contentious politics here at home, as you think about social contagions, which cause us to question the very grounding of our identity and created order, or maybe just the malaise and nihilism spread across our high school and college campuses. None of that is a surprise to Jesus Christ. He stands over and above a shaking world which shakes in each and every generation, and his word holds firm. His word is always true. And so we need, and we are called to be in this text, people who cling to it. Not cling to it, by the way, to prove your spiritual state or your good standing before God, but who cling to it in order to meet the risen and living Lord Jesus Christ in its text. By the grace of God, we do not need to prove who we are. We simply need to pursue in relationship the Father that calls us through his Son and by his Spirit. We need to be reconciled through relationship with Jesus Christ so that no one will seize our crown, that no one will deceive us about who God is, who we are, or the brokenness of our world. So we are, Journey Church, a people who cling to the Scriptures, We are a church that seeks to put the Bible preeminent in our understanding of life and ministry and all that we do. We are a people who seeks to build up a robust understanding of doctrine and theology, true and accurate beliefs about God, ourselves, and our world. Moreover, we are those who enter the kingdom when the world's doors are shut. Philadelphia and Smyrna, in these seven letters, are the only two churches which receive no critical feedback from Jesus Christ. And each of them faces the hardship of being locked out of the sectors of power, significance, and influence in their towns and cities. But that is okay. Because their identity does not reside within the doors of their culture. You can shut and lock those doors, but the value and the meaning and the significance of a life of a Christian is hidden with Christ in the kingdom of heaven. And so we in this text are called to be people who live in the kingdom today in as much as that is possible. And what I mean by that is when Jesus came in his earthly ministry, he claimed declaring that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, not coming in the future, but was present with him because he was its king. And the kingdom has not come fully. This is one of the reasons why so many people missed who Jesus was, because they expected a full, realized kingdom as soon as the Messiah showed up, but their friends are still tears to be shed. There's still pain yet to be experienced. And there's still persecution, which Christ's church still undergoes and endures. The kingdom has not come fully. Theologians refer to this as the already, but not yet, kingdom of Christ that he has brought it in some tangible and meaningful way, but we still await its realization. We still await the day in which all tears will be wiped away. And so how do we live? This is one of the reasons why I thanked Micah at the beginning. He's already preached this sermon for us. We live as if we do not belong to this world. John 15, 18, and 19, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were... Of the world, the world would love you like its own, but because you are not of the world, because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why must we endure? Because the world hates the word of God. The world hates those marked by the word of God. The world hates them because we are not of them. The world is not our home. We are sojourners and exiles. We might have an address or a resident, but we are still aliens on our way somewhere else. So how do we live as if this world is not our home? Let's think about that as a church and as individuals. First, as a church, there are many who will tell you that the kingdom of God, when it comes, looks like a Marvel movie with special effects. The fact of the matter, though, is that the Christian faith is always understated. It's earthy. It feels shockingly of this present age. Think about it. We worship, even now, today, we have worshiped with the broken and cracking voices of old age for some and adolescence for others. We grow in our spirituality by the study of black text on tissue-thin pages. We meet Christ in the bread and wine of those who cultivate the soil and her fruits. And we declare our separation from the world in the waters of baptism, the most abundant resource this world has. There's nothing shocking, there's no effects behind the curtain. And one of the reasons for that is because even though this world is not the way God intended it to be, he is her creator. And so we should not be surprised when we find the elements of our worship right here in this world, in the world that God once declared that is good. What of our individual lives? Well, let's land the plane in Revelation 3.12. I think in this verse, we see allusions to three pursuits of kingdom faithfulness for each and every individual Christian. Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. In this text, we see identity, worship, and purpose. These are inextricably tied together, so if we get one wrong, we likely have misunderstood the other two in some way, shape, or form. Identity, I will write on him the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Worship, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And purpose, I will write on him the name of my God in my own name. Let's think about these. In the early chapters of Genesis, and I know somebody in their heart just freaked out a little bit. Tyler's like 34 minutes into the sermon and he just said the book of Genesis and we're in Revelation. It's okay, calm down, deep breath. We're gonna get through this. Here we go. In the early chapters of Genesis, Moses uses numerous literary devices to show us that fundamentally what he is talking about is a division of two humanities, two ways of identifying yourself. Thus, in Genesis 2 through 4, the entrance of sin into the world creates, in place of one humanity, two. We see this in in Genesis 3, 15, where there will be two seeds from Adam and Eve, one aligned with the serpent, and one that will crush the serpent's head, aligned with the woman. In Genesis 4, we meet two brothers who represent these two seeds, one who moves far from God after murdering, and the other one who seeks the pleasure of God in his sacrifice. Moving on from there, in Genesis 5, we encounter two genealogies, two family trees, one that ends by telling us that they called upon the name of the Lord, and the other one telling us that they sought their salvation and the work of their hand, be they war, culture, music, or cooking. Each of these represents a corresponding identity marker. Who is your true patronage? Where will you find your significance? What will save you from the brokenness of this world? How do you find security? In Genesis 11, then, when we encounter the ta- Tower of Babel, which we, we would be prompted to then see in Genesis 12, the city of God. If there's a city of man in Genesis 11, we would think city of God in Genesis 12. But instead of a city of God, we get a nomad a wanderer. Abram called to leave the city of man to venture forth, as Hebrews eleven eight 8 through 10 says, by faith Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out of a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going, but by faith he went to live in the land of promise as a foreigner, living in the tents with Isaac and with Jacob, the heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. Genesis 2 through 12, in effect, is posing the question, who, what, or where will you identify with? What will define you? And each pair highlights a contrast, a contrast of loves. Will your love be found fundamentally in this world or fundamentally with God in the next? And so the city of God is the place where the love of God marks each and every one of its citizens, and where their identity is found not in the circumstances of their lives, but rather in the resurrected and glorious Jesus Christ, its Messiah and King. We only attain this city as Abraham did by faith. And so having been wakened by faith, we move to worship. Having our identity in God's city grants us access to his temple, the place of his presence, and his formal worship. In this way, then, being a citizen of the heavenly city is to be a worshiper of God. Jesus says we will worship in such a consistent and constant manner that we will be as a pillar in the temple, a load-bearing fixture. We will be so often in God's presence that it will be as if we are part of the architecture and furniture of the holy of holies itself. But this is not literally because we will never exit the temple. Rather, it is because we will, as we do now, have the Holy Spirit residing inside us. And so the Spirit of God, which conducts, orchestrates, and prompts us to worship, will guide our hearts into consistent and constant worship such that it marks every aspect of our lives. And as well, purpose we will have God's name written upon us and his son, Jesus Christ. Now we can often miss what this means because we tend to minimize the aspect of taking God's name to some sort of command about not using it as a swear word or using it wrongly. We look in the Ten Commandments and we see don't take the Lord's name in vain and we think that that takes certain phrases that we might say when we stub our toe or our team loses or something angers us. We think it takes those off the table, but that is not what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. The concept there in the text is to bear it, to carry it. The closest association in the text is with the creation of man in Genesis 1 who bears the image, carries the image of God. And so we are to bear or carry the name of God, but do not do it in vain. Do not do it in a meaningless or vain way where it does not affect our actual lives. If we were to look at Exodus 20, 1 through 7, we would see a connection between God saving us from slavery which for them was slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, for us was slavery to sin. Saving us from slavery, telling us that he is our God, telling us that we should not commit idolatry, but rather that we should bear his name. In other words, we could read Exodus 1 through, or 20, 1-7, as I am your God because I have saved you. Because I have saved you, you will not worship anything other than me. And how do you worship anything? How do you worship me? My name marks your life. This calls to rem- us to remember Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you For what you have done in and through Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that the good news of Christ's saving love and sacrifice is good because we begin in a state so bad, so desperate, and so dire. We stand before you as breakers and violators of the law that you put in the text of Scripture and in the foundation and architecture of the universe. But through the sacrifice of Christ, we might be forgiven. You have made a way that our moral imperfection may be covered by his moral perfection, his righteousness, and that we may stand in your presence, knowing that we are identified with him, that our significance and meaning is found in your son, that we can worship in every aspect of our life unfettered from Satan, the flesh, and the devil, and that we have a purpose to bear your name amongst your people, yes, but also out into the world, that we might declare who you are in every aspect of our lives. Father, would you continue to fill us with your spirit that we might do this evermore, each and every day. And we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.